This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli, and we have a mailbag episode for you. We've solicited questions from all of our listeners uh, via Twitter and wherever else you're listening, um, and we have plenty of questions. We we did not have to send out the, uh, the, the, the desperation pleas for questions that we've had to do in some of the previous mailbag episodes, so shout out to everyone who submitted a question for this specific mailbag, even if we don't end up getting to it today. Um, Before I ask Dan how he's doing, uh, a couple of announcements to make. One is that we're going to start making these Monday mailbags a a more consistent thing. So just start expecting questions um, to be submitted over the weekend. If you think of anything throughout the week, just let us know uh, via DM, via uh, tweet at us. However, However you can get our attention, we will do our best to pay attention to it. And also, we wanted to to encourage everyone to follow the entirety of the burgeoning sports math network, uh, which is the the parent site for NBA math. Uh, we've we've started to do more uh, at, a, at a number of different Twitter accounts. So if you're interested, go ahead and give them follows. We have MLB Math, which is MLB underscore Math. We have NHL Math, same format. We have QB Math, which is the same format, and then the overall sports math network, which is the underscore Sports underscore Math. And with all that out of the way, how's it going, Dan? Um, I am just in awe of how good that introduction was. That's how it's going. How about yourself? I practiced it exactly zero times. Wow, that's a lot. That's more than usual. I know, know, it is. Uh, I, too, was overwhelmed. I sent out the first mailbag solicitation on, like, late Saturday night. Dumbest thing ever. I'll start to do that during the week. Although we we have, like, three mailbags worth of questions here, so... The response on the morning I sent them out on or afternoon on Sunday was great. Um, I will be better about sending them out at times when people are probably actually on Twitter, maybe looking. Not well. Not, I, I think the key is that I didn't even make an effort to. Like I had nothing to do with the that's a big deal. solicitations, which is why people actually responded. That's a big deal. Um, yeah. We're going to go all about like lowering my workload. It's great. We're going to look, we're going to try and be super efficient with these because we have so many questions going to tackle the ones that came from hardwood Knox or via DM um, because I did have a DM one before I even said that the solicitation. So let's start there. Uh, longtime listener, Raul Clements, and I hope I didn't butcher the pronunciation too bad. I'm just going to assume I butcher every pronunciation, but he asked, uh, but what about a Bledsoe for Luke Kennard trade? I guess you throw in Lou Will to make the money work or a bunch of their smaller salaries. I bet the Clippers already regret the Luke Kennard extension, given that he's racking up DMPs. Bledsoe's a little bit more of a point guard than Beverly, and Kennard could replace JJ's role um, once they trade JJ. I don't have a firm grasp on Kennard or Bledsoe's value, but I would think it's not super high for either guy. I'll just seize this and answer it. Luke Kennard is incredibly difficult to move because he signed an extension, and so he's just operating under that poison pill provision. So he's going to count as a huge um, – Not, I don't want to get into like the super granular nuance of the poison pill provision so that you guys already yes, you do. tune out. I mean, I do. You but do, I, though. You do want to. But I'm not going to. But just as like a, as like a primer, he's going to count as a huge – incoming salary for um the the other team but he's going to count as a different outgoing salary for the clippers and that just makes him unless you have you know the knicks are floating out there so you have a team with cap space um to take on additional salary so 
you can make this work, but it's just, it's incredibly difficult um, for, for them to do. So if you want, and I don't know that Bledsoe is the best fit for the Clippers because of his own salary. They It does feel like they need someone who can defend point guards better. Just I'm not sure Patrick Beverly is there. A lot of people have mentioned this. It does seem like he's more equipped to go after bigger guys now. And it'd be nice if they could get someone else who could put pressure on on the rim for them. And the name that I've kept coming back to is DeLon Wright. And I don't know if you want to give up Lou Williams and Terrence Mann to get DeLon Wright. Uh, I personally would just because I think of what DeLon Wright does defensively, and he's been hitting his set threes this year in Detroit. So my assumption would be he could do more in uh, Los Angeles and that he could also get to the rim a little bit more with the way that their spacing works. But, you know, Bledsoe, theoretically, would be a good fit, but he's proved to be too much of a zero on offense in the playoffs where if you got a DeLon Wright who's making – you know, essentially half of what Eric Bledsoe is making, you could maybe live with having to work around that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, if, if we are able to avoid the poison pill provision and, and the financial nuances of, of this trade and just look at the, the two players in a vacuum, like I think it does make sense for both teams. Bledsoe might not be the ideal addition for the Los Angeles Clippers, but he would certainly still be a helpful one just because of that point of attack defense, the ability to get to the rim, kind of be a steadying ball handling force, which the Clippers do need occasionally just since they are pretty reliant on, on some jumpers and some isolation sets and all that. And, and Luke Kennard really would be a great fit for New Orleans, given how they've started to play recently with Zion Williamson handling the ball far more frequently, both in transition and running pick and rolls. He's gotten so much more comfortable taking control of possessions and hitting kickout opportunities when the defense compresses around him and route to the, the rim. So I, I do think adding another young shooter uh, like Kennard, who can also put the ball on the floor out of those, those catch and dribble situations would make a lot of sense. But as, as Dan mentioned, right at the top like the money is hard to figure out there yeah and uh i think the pelicans just need luke Kennard's not going to do anything for their defense which is where they need the most help but they just need guys who are like between six seven and, and six eight at this point there's just like that glaring lack of um stuff there but i don't know you know do you want him to fill the jj reddick role when you barely want jj reddick to fill the jj reddick role right now he's just yeah. not playing a ton so that is interesting and I, mean, I don't think it's like either is an ideal fit but i think canard makes more sense for the pelicans than bledsoe does right now and vice versa correct and raul and i went back and forth to the dms actually about other targets that uh people could look at uh this one comes from Mir- miroslav shook who is the last number one pick who won a championship not assisted by another number one pick yeah, we thought this was going to be a lot harder to research than it actually was. Um, the answer is Andrew Bogut on the 2014-15 Golden State Warriors, because as stacked as that team was with Steph and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green, there weren't any other number one picks on that on that squad. Um, so yeah, they, that that would be the surprising answer to me. And if you go back a little further, the next number one pick to win a championship as the only number one pick on the roster would be LeBron James with the Miami Heat. Greg Oden did not come around on those two championship rosters. So he it was smooth sailing for him in that regard, even though Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch together probably exceed the value of a typical number one pick. Yeah, that was um that was interesting. And a lot of guys from the 20, 2003 uh, had him in Bob. Yeah, I'm like looking at the rosters now. And I don't think we missed anyone there. So that's it's it really shouldn't be Bogut just because he didn't necessarily win. Like he wasn't the best player on that Warriors team, but it, it is Bogut. And then as you said, it's it's LeBron when you look at it through the the other context. I did, were you surprised that it was that you didn't have to go back further, or were you surprised that it was not sooner? I think I I was surprised. I didn't really consider Bogut until we were looking through the number one picks. LeBron didn't surprise me too much just because. You know, we know that as as stacked as those teams were, um, that there weren't other number one picks. But then, like, I, I'm just looking at the list of top overall selections, and I think the next one, and I'm just eyeballing this right now, uh, it would be Tim Duncan, probably, who uh, didn't he, – he won later in his career without any fellow number one picks – um, because I believe David Robinson earlier in his career for his first title was a number one pick back from 1987. Um, beyond that, like I would, I would have to look and see if Shaq played with any like number one picks who were just sitting on the bench or something for those Lakers teams or the Heat team that won a title with him. Um, I, I think that he would probably be another answer. So it? I guess I guess I'm surprised that there are so many just 
given how few number one picks historically do win titles, especially with the teams that drafted them. And none of those none of those answers, aside from Duncan, answered the question with the franchise that selected them. I think I was surprised that it came so soon, I guess, because in the super team era, you just assume that more stars are congregating together so that this answer might have been tougher to figure out. But the number one pick sample size is just so small relative to everything. So even if you're coming up with another star, they didn't have to be taken at the number one pick and not every number one pick becomes a star. So that was that was a very interesting question. Hey, everyone, before we get into today's pod, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. On top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all the other listening platforms. And the best part is, you get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com dot com slash join that's bwhustle.com slash join check out our description box for this episode to find out more but that's bwhustle.com slash join nobody builds 5g like verizon builds 5g because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in america and the more you do with 5g the more building it right matters the more your network matters the more verizon engineers going the extra mile matters it's us pushing us it's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Brian, colleague and friend, Brian, how do you pronounce his last name? Toporek? Am I getting to, it wrong? Toporek. Toporek. Brian Toporek. Sorry, I definitely, Toporek. Sorry, I've definitely mis- been mispronouncing that for way too long. Who is the MVP at the midseason mark, and why is it Joel Embiid? We had other questions on this mailbag, too, that was asking, when is the media going to acknowledge that Nikola Jokic is the, the clear MVP? I don't I don't want to be like, the, like the, the Debbie Downer here when it comes to not providing concrete answers. I can't. It's a tough MVP race, but if you were to vote for LeBron or Jokic or Embiid right now, I don't have a good argument to say that you're wrong. For any three of those guys, I, I might push back on the LeBron one. Like I, I get why there's been such a, a momentum shift in his direction, just because it feels like he's not going to have that many more opportunities to win MVP. I say that before he plays for like another 20 years at a high level. But just the slump that the Lakers have found themselves in without Anthony Davis available is pretty telling. That like he's he's still not lifting that team quite as much as we would want um, from a true MVP frontrunner. So like I get the argument, I just might push back a little bit on that one specifically. Uh, when you look at their half court offensive numbers without him, I might push back against your pushback there. I think. Oh, I mean, they're terrible without him, but like he's he's not elevating them to the level of a title contender single handedly right now, which it kind of feels like is the assumption given how much credit he's been receiving in these MVP conversations lately. I, th- I still think it's between. Jokic and Joel Embiid, and I'm willing to put Giannis's name in there again. Oh, you're 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 of the mind that James Harden belongs in there too, aren't you? No, I mean I don't think that he's played enough for the team that he's on right now. I would also argue that the first nine or ten games of the season need to matter. I think that's my old head yelling at Cloud thing. I don't actually mind the way he went about getting out of Houston, but I don't know that you can do that and then win the MVP award in the same season. Right. Would be my only gripe. Uh. I, my pick would be Embiid right now, by the way, over Jokic. And I think it's just because of his dominance at both ends of the floor, which kind of leads us into this next question. Uh, this this one comes from Rodrigo Race. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We'll get to yours in a second. But this one comes from TJR. What chance does Jokic have to be the first center to ever lead the NBA in steals yet still be considered a horrible defender by eye test Twitter? Um, I feel like he doesn't have a very good chance of leading the league in steals 
So, I mean, like, he's, he's third right now. Like, he's averaging 1.7 per game, which puts him behind TJ McConnell and Fred Van Vliet on significant digits um, among qualified players. But, like, I just, I, I guess I have trouble believing that he's going to maintain that pace for the rest of the season, considering he had not averaged more than 1.4 prior to this season and was at 1.2 for his career and last season. Um, so I, I'm just not sure that the Nuggets really want him to be playing big enough minutes with a, a movement heavy enough off defensive role to actually get there. But if he did happen to win, like, yeah, like he would still be perceived as a weak defender who led the league in steals somehow. I guess like Monte Ellis style, maybe as strange as it might be to compare those two players. I don't know where the perception of Nikola Jokic or where the, the actuality of Nikola Jokic is on defense anymore relative to like the discourse, because he does have really good hands for a big man. And I think, I think we tend to get like a biased view of that discourse too, just because the, the TPA graphs that we put out at NBA math, like we've said multiple times, I try to answer that kind of question, like at least once every other week that yes, it is inflating his numbers because he has interaction effects between assists and rebounds. And the way the defensive portion of the metric is calculated is by looking at overall value, which is a pretty solid calculation and offensive value, which is a pretty solid calculation. And then assigning the defensive value to the difference, which is problematic. Uh, so it, his defense in all of those pictures and those graphical representations is overinflated. So there tends to be pushback against that. But at the same time, like he's not a bad defender and it doesn't take long watching the Nuggets to realize that so long as you're watching the right way because he's weak at the point of attack. He's not a great rim protector, but he does so many good things in between those two terminuses of a defensive possession not to mention that he's a great defensive rebounder who prevents second chance opportunities which i personally think should matter more than it typically does in defense conversations is he a great defender no is he a bad defender no like he's he's a good passable defensive big and with as we see with so many conversations it's it's hard for people to accept that the middle ground is actually the correct answer because we tend to veer so far towards extremes with almost every topic yeah it, i'm totally with you there's the middle ground i don't think he's terrible i don't know that i would go as far as good or passable because i do think you want your big like him who's not going to like you said be this lockdown guy from the, the point of attack it needs to be more I don't want to say he needs to be more consistent around the rim where he's not going to get burned um, by an extra pass. And look, the numbers are going to bear that out. The The Nuggets have had trouble defending the rim this season, and you have to put some of that on their their starting big man. And I do, again, I think he has great hands. You talked about his um, defensive rebounding. And I do think there are certain situations where he's uh, can be an okay rim protector. Like if he doesn't have to you know react or pivot as, you know, uh, I guess it's instantaneously to make those reads, it ends up being huge or he ends up being fine there. But if you're going to have a big, who's going to anchor an elite defense, it's just, I don't know that it's going to be him. I think you can build a very good defense around him. I just don't know that he's ever going to be like one of the three most important anchors of that defense in any given lineup from a positive perspective. That doesn't change anything he does on offense. And I do agree with you that there's just this, People think that he gets cooked all the time on defense, and it's just and when you watch him, it's really just not like that. Because even if he defends high, sometimes like he can make plays up when he is really high. Um, mm-hmm. No, you don't want like he's not. I'm trying to think of what, like, who do you want him to be? I guess as a big man would be my. No, he's not Anthony Davis, uh, and he's definitely not Rudy Gobert. But not everyone's going to be Rudy Gobert, and there are people who argue that Anthony Davis is a bad defender because of the hot off splits. So. I think ultimately he's better at like elongating possessions and forcing the offense to have to make a few extra decisions and settle for a marginally less effective shot than he is at just like straight up ending a possession or making a, a turnover forcing play. Like we, we see Rudy Gobert, who's so good at recovering and Anthony Davis, who can cover so much ground and operate from the weak side and come over to help. And Jokic doesn't like do any of those highlight worthy plays very frequently. It's just, it's more that he makes these subtle, correct decisions that make the offense's job harder. And, and the, I think there's value in that. And there's also value in him just being in the right spots, too. When he's even getting burned around the rim, it's I think it's probably more so of a 
a physical limitation. It's not any. It's not all the time where he's doing something. I mean, you even said it. He's not making these incorrect decisions. So it's not. There might be an, an element of physical limitations here where he's just not going to have the same like pivot quickness or lateral quickness in those situations when there is the the extra pass. So uh, yeah, I don't think he's a terrible defender. It's it is. I guess the. The eye test versus stats Twitter though. I I don't I guess I never see those debates on whether Jokic just is a is a bad defender or not. I feel like it's just stated that they happen in the NBA math mentions a lot. I need to read the NBA math mentions a little bit more, apparently. But uh I I agree with basically everything you just said. This question comes from Zach Williams. What do the Kings do about Buddy Heald? I still think they've got to move him. Like this core just isn't going to work. And uh, his, his shooting alone has so much value that you're going to be able to find a home for him and commit long-term to a backcourt of De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton. Like you have those pieces in place. He'll just a luxury item for a good team. He shouldn't really be a centerpiece on a rebuild. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think, the only answer is is that he's eventually going to get moved out of Sacramento for a value, probably. I was just very distracted because I was thinking about our Jokic conversation. I hate that we get whenever there's an MVP discussion, we get put in a place where we're like discrediting what's one of the five to seven best players in the NBA. It's it leaves me distraught. I want to make it clear that I think Nikola Jokic is spectacular. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, I can't. I've been struggling with that whenever we do awards talk uh, or you know. Who would you rather that we end up like sort of putting mm. down really good players? Buddy Heald for me, though, I would agree they need to move him. He's shooting over his past 14 games. He's going through it 30.2% from three. Uh, I think they, he just doesn't look interested. The, they've tried playing him with Halliburton and De'Aaron Fox together. It's just not working, and I don't know that can ever work long term. What's interesting, though, or I guess difficult here is I don't think that you can just – he has three years and $62.5 million left on his deal – I don't think that you can just move him for the sake of moving him. I I still think because shooting has value and of how important he theoretically could be to your team as a shooter, if you get better, because he, look, he's going to shoot better from three. Like he's not shooting sub 31% from three for the rest of the season. He's too good of a shooter. The stats just bear that out. He's been one of the elite three point weapons over the past few years. I just think that can you trade him for like a, you know, something I was thinking like, would you do buddy healed for, Gorgie Jang and Justice Winslow, if you were Memphis or Sacramento right now. And maybe that's tougher because Justice Winslow is barely, he just started playing uh, for Memphis. But if you're, you know, can you do Buddy Heald for, Buddy Heald for Aaron Gordon, essentially be interesting framework. Uh, Right, I think as long as you're getting back a a shorter term contract, then you should be interested from Sacramento, especially if those wheels are greased with like a second round pick or two, just to get something. But yeah, I don't and I think, look, like you can't expect to get something substantial back. And I, I think that whoever ends up landing Buddy Heald, who just based on the, the history of his three-point shooting, like he's going to play better than he is right now, most likely when he's motivated on a good team um, or even a more capable one than Sacramento has been this season. Like whoever lands him is going to get good value. Next question comes from... Rodrigo Ray this time, and I hope I'm not pronouncing that too poorly. Why are the Celtics so poor without Smart? Is it something like the Warriors without Draymond Green? Yeah, I think there's something to be said for losing a player who is both important on the stat sheet and is an emotional heartbeat of the team. You know, Draymond Green motivates the Warriors so much with his play and with his passion, and it's similar for the Boston Celtics with Marcus Smart. Like just you know how hard he's going to play on both ends of the court whenever he is healthy and available. And I do think it's hard to overcome that kind of loss, even if he isn't one of the team's most important players from an X's and O's perspective. They haven't had the defensive weaponry on the perimeter to really account for that loss. And it hasn't helped that Kemba Walker hasn't been what they need either. Like they, they need aggression and the ability to get to the rim um, and when the defense is only mediocre without smart, like that's, that's ultimately a, a too big of a shortcoming for the Celtics to remain in that upper echelon of the East, as we've seen. Yeah. And I don't know that it helps. I mean, look, smart is such a 
smart defensive player where it's just like he can be in so many places at the right time and he's really going to make sure you know he's not going to help off of guys if it mean you know he's not going to help off of the wrong guy and you can look at that when the celtics are allowing a you know a ton fewer corner threes when he's on on the court and he's going to put more pressure without getting burned than some of these other guys and i don't know how much it you know, this necessarily isn't a smart thing, but there is also the element of high variance to Boston's offense, which is 10th in points scored per possession when you factor out garbage time. Uh, but they only the Blazers take more pull-up jumpers per game, and they're 28th in the frequency with which their shots come at the rim. So when you're relying that heavily on jumpers, you're just going to have those high variance, high leverage nights. And it, it opens you up now without smart, where there might be multiple ways that, that you get burned. I think with smart, though, they're probably a substantially better team than we'd seen, but I still view them. They're probably more than one player away from being a genuine title contender, right? I think so. But I also think that there's enough potential for internal improvement that that player might be on the roster. Like it, it wouldn't surprise me if Kemba started playing more like the Kemba Walker we saw in Charlotte. That's true. And that was enough for them to reascend. If Peyton Pritchard starts to look like he did at the beginning of the season, if Grant Williams has a sudden breakout, if Tristan Thompson starts figuring things out, or they give more minutes to, to Robert Williams the third, and he he starts to, you know, stay out of foul trouble and, and make more of a positive impact around the rim on a more consistent basis. It feels like the Celtics are more than one piece away, and yet they still have the internal ability to fill those holes without needing to, to go on the trade market and let Danny Ainge do what Danny Ainge wants to do, which is almost make a trade and then claim it was closer than it was. He's made moves, but they typically come in the off season. He's just the master of not of like fake mid season stuff. No last question coming from the hardwood Knox account itself before we get into others. Noah uh, Odage, are you ready to stop doubting and believe in the Knicks as a true playoff team? I'm assuming that's aimed at me. I I would think so. I, I feel like you've been more outspoken about the Knicks. I mean, yeah, like we're 34 games into the season. They're five. They're playing 500 basketball. They've scored more points than they've allowed. Like there are still signs of possible regression, i.e., opponent three point shooting eventually needing to regress to the mean or progress to the mean here. Um, but this is clearly a better team than we assumed at the beginning of the season. Yes. And look, the defense has been great for them. And I'm going to have to do a make culpa here, I think, because I had a filter on of cleaning the glass when I was looking at the the Celtic stats that said that they were um, 10th in offensive efficiency. They are actually 13th in points scored per possession. And the defense is still holding strong at 14th in points allowed per possession, but they've definitely been on the, the downswing without Marcus Smart. The thing with the Knicks is just that they're 24th in offense. They don't take a, a ton of threes, even though they're hitting them at a reasonable clip. And so, you know, we could look at the defensive regression where I don't view them as a top three defensive team, but maybe this is the season where that happens because the third best defensive team is allowing 108 point, uh, 108.4 points mm. per 100 possessions. And, and the Knicks are watchable. They are eminently watchable. And maybe the fan the the deadingly disenchanted fan in me is distraught that in a season where the 2021 draft class is expected to be so good the Knicks are just we'll say wonderfully mediocre to the point that yeah okay maybe they end up with a lottery pick or maybe they don't end up with a lottery pick but now you're missing yet another chance to get that blue chip cornerstone because I don't think they have him yet and it's I just the way Mitchell Robinson plays uh when he's healthy, I think he can be a really good player, but not someone you build around. The end game with Julius Randle is temporary. That's just Julius Randle has been in, he deserved to be an all star this season. That's totally fine. Uh, I don't, I guess it's too soon to write off RJ Barrett, but he needs to, like, and I, it's too soon to write off RJ Barrett, but that's the really the only guy. I don't know if it's quickly where you look at and saying, oh, we're going to rebuild around him. And so that's maybe it's hard for me to separate that. In the East, though, just relative to what's happening, I, I guess you can just say at this point, should the Knicks be considered like they're going to finish, you know, 10th or better at this point if we want to consider the plan? Because in I all likelihood, yeah, they're still too close to dropping out for me to be like, oh, they're going to finish sixth and absolutely get a game in the first round. I still wouldn't right. go they're, that they're, far. They're currently, what is it? I, yeah, I mean, it's only two and a half games that separate them from the Atlanta Hawks, who I think we have to assume are going to improve as the season progresses, if only because they get healthier. The Wizards have been coming on strong. 
Um, they're tied with the Hawks in the standings right now, despite playing two fewer games. So yeah, I mean, like the Knicks are by no means like safely in the playoff lock picture, but yeah, I mean, they 100% deserve to be strongly considered and probably favored for one of those top 10 spots. This is a good lead in to uh, another Knicks question. How does Alfred Payton start? And this comes from Marek Barnett. Uh, I will. Alfred Payton is not currently starting because he's injured. I don't know if this is just a Tibbs wants to, you know, maintain continuity. But I will say one of the effects of quickly not being the starter is we've been getting to see some like quickly Frank Nielakina minutes. And I got to say, those make my heart warm and fuzzy. I don't know why. Are they trying to showcase his value? What would be the, the argument against, you know, I think everyone's going to be like, hey, just start quickly. I'm, I actually won't really get too bent out of shape about that. But why wouldn't you start, you know, Derek Rose at this point Um, again, over Alfred Payton? Again, Alfred Payton has not started the, the past two games for the Knicks because he has a hamstring injury, I believe. So do you have an argument for why Alfred Payton should start over Derek Rose or Emmanuel quickly? I got nothing there aside from the fact that Tom Thibodeau is the coach and he's done a fantastic job, but Tibbs is still going to Tibbs and you know that he loves his veteran players and he is a stickler for being stubborn within the same season. Um, And because Alfred Payton has been starting all year, Alfred Payton is probably going to continue starting while he's on the roster because that's what Tibbs does. And the argument is if he was shooting lights out from three where it's like, you know, we can't really trust Derek Rose to do that, but you're going to trust Derek Rose just more to play alongside, I think, Julius Randle and uh, Barrett, or maybe he just looks at it as, hey, Peyton is the most accomplished playmaker that they have, and you want to make sure that, you know, you have Julius Randle there too, but you don't want to make sure that someone's cannibalizing too many possessions from Barrett. I don't know. I don't know the samples big enough with the Derrick Rose uh, era, and then we don't have a ton with, you know, the Neil Aquina quickly stuff, but I would argue that Alfred Payton should not be finishing the season on this team, but the, the, the Knicks, again, they're they're tied for fifth, fourth in the East, whatever it is, at 500. So Tibbs knows a lot that we don't. Uh, Tubbs asks, I'm just laughing at the name, uh, what is Colin Sexton's efficiency from 10? How efficient is Colin Sexton from 10 to 15 feet out? I use 10 to 16 feet just because it was easier to look up with on uh, basketball reference. He's shooting 54.3% from 10 to 16 feet. Bonus. That is the fourth highest clip from 10 to 16 feet among 39 players with at least 50 such attempts this season. Would you care to venture? Can you guess any of the the players that are in the, the top three? I guarantee in you're not going to get two of them. them. Yeah. I mean, my, my immediate instinct is to go with Chris Paul, Nikola Vucevic, and Chris Middleton. Okay, you got exactly zero. I thought you would have gotten Kevin Durant. Uh, he's, okay. The other two you weren't getting. Tyus Jones, 57.9% between 10 and 16 feet. This one this one got me, but it, it shouldn't have. Rashawn Holmes, 71%. Mm. That little push shot, and it's definitely not coming from yeah, 10 feet out yeah. all the time. But shout out Were to— my Rash- guess is at least like high on the leaderboard? No. <laughs> oh, cool. Awesome. Uh, let me that fi- feels I, great. Who was, who was your get, first guess? Was Chris Paul? Yep. Vooch was, is 17th at 47%, okay. and that was your highest of that. the guesses. So— I am I'll surprised that. that's you know Chris Paul's at 44.8. Chris Paul's at 44.8%, but he only likes to take like those he's probably shooting astronomically high from like on long mid-rangers. So so that's right. what it's got to be. Uh and that's still a good clip ultimately. But I mean I I I'm still like a little con- concerned about that Colin Sexton stat. Like it's great that he's hitting those. I don't really love that he's shooting a higher percentage of his shots from both 10 to 16 feet and 16 feet to the three-point line this season than he was last year and more than he did as a rookie also like that's not really the way we want to see those shot profiles trending as good as he's been this season like that might be a valid nit to pick at yeah and I don't it's come at the expense of mostly looks at the rim and I don't if he was taking more threes that wouldn't bother me as much but his three-point attempt rate is down still he's still a good shooter mind you but I, I totally agree with you. That is something to to sort of watch. But I remain – I will continue to buy Colin Sexton stock. I'm oh, yeah, yeah. This is, this is very much like a minor gripe. Like Sexton has been fantastic. Would you – so before we get into some of the other questions that have to do with TPA, uh, Gavi Ashkenazi asks, what's TPA? I feel like this might be the question for the, the founder and editor-in-chief of NBA Math, Adam Frommel. I don't know about you, though. 
Yeah, I'm just like not entirely sure how to approach answering that. It stands for total points added. It looks at a player's contributions relative to league average production based on how many possessions they've played, such that an, an average play, a slightly above average player who spends a lot of time on the floor is valued highly, as is a guy who's way above average in a smaller sample. So ultimately, it's a way of blending together per possession efficiency and volume to have a single number single number metric. We do not typically recommend using it as the end-all, be-all, as gospel or anything like that. The defensive portion of the metric is particularly shaky and should always be blended with the eye test. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the, the beauty of, of TPA is that we can calculate it all the way back into the early 1970s, which is not the case for many of the catch-all numbers. So we're sacrificing a little bit in terms of accuracy for that historical element. That was, it's almost like you invented the stat. It's like, that's, yeah, how, that's how good the yeah. explanation was. This is going to tie into it. And so th- look, if you want to make Nikola Jokic just MVP case, it's coming right, right now. Here we uh, go. <laughs> Anthony, Anthony Morlachi asks, how many teams have entire combined TPAs less than Jokic by himself? So I didn't know what to expect when I dove into this question, just because summing all of the TPAs on a, on a team isn't something that we typically do, just because there are like weird interaction effects and all that with with that process but i did it anyway to answer this question and like the results they passed the sniff test you know like if you look at the the bottom five teams by summed tpa of all contributors both the ones who are on the roster now and who were on the roster earlier in the season and were traded etc etc the bottom five are are the Minnesota Timberwolves at minus 366, the Orlando Magic at minus 271.9, the Cleveland Cavaliers at minus 249.8, and the Oklahoma City Thunder at minus 249.3, and the Sacramento Kings at minus 226, which I think you would agree, like, those are the bottom-feeding teams this season, right? Right. Yeah, correct. So the top five, uh, we have uh, the, the Brooklyn Nets just barely missed out. I would assume they'll move into the top five as they get even more out of their big three. But the Phoenix Suns at 120.5, the Los Angeles Clippers at 126.8, the Los Angeles Lakers at 155.5, the Milwaukee Bucks at 216.0, and the Utah Jazz at 264.0. Can you just say the number well, one team again? That, that would be the Utah Jazz. Yeah, just wanted at, to at minus At, at 264, that. not just minus. Wanted to reemphasize um, that. Sorry, go ahead. Jokic, Jokic has 277.7 TPA, which would mean that he, he's outproducing every team in the league. Now, to follow that up, even with his contributions, the Nuggets are seventh in these summed individual contributions because the rest of the roster has been so ridiculously negative. So their sum is 834 including his 277.7. So yeah, Jokic single-handedly has more TPA than every team in the NBA. Second place in individual TPA is Giannis at 178.5. So only the Jazz and the Bucks, which obviously include his contributions, are ahead of him. So it's not like just Jokic. I think we're going to see that kind of thing with a lot of stars. I was just surprised to see how those numbers worked out. We have another... Uh, stat-related question. Chris asks, why does defensive point saved say Dylan Brooks is a bad defender when he's a great on-ball defender? Yeah, Dan and I talked about this one before we started recording just because it is such a good question. Uh, I, I think it's similar to what we've seen in the past from guys like Avery Bradley and Clay Thompson, where their statistical profile just doesn't necessarily lend itself to sterling defensive metrics because they aren't producing steals and blocks at an elite rate. They're not really strong defensive rebounders. And so much of their best work tends to come in on-ball situations. And the result of a good on-ball possession is usually a pass so that somebody else has to take a shot. And that's just not going to be captured by the, by these metrics. Plus like the Grizzlies have been a mediocre defensive team. So he's not going to benefit from any like team effects um, in this particular metric. So I think it's pretty clear that if, if you watch him, you see how physical and how relentless he is and how many good on-ball skills he has. It's just not being reflected in those stats because 
these catch-all metrics aren't going to capture anything. And it's just yet another reason that, you know, the eye test and, and stats are not these polar extremes that are in constant conflict. They're pieces of the same toolbox meant to be used together. And in this case, like, you can create a nice balance where like Dylan Brooks isn't doing enough to be viewed as an elite defender, even if he might look like it on some possessions. But the eye test is also making it pretty clear that like the numbers that say he's one of the worst defenders in the league are obviously wrong. Yeah. And look, he's an important part of what is the 12th ranked defense right now. And so you can call that mediocre, but to be with the injuries that they've dealt with too in Memphis or the lack of availability and the lack of availability uh, for them to be, yeah, I just, I mean, purely from a statistical standpoint, like I would consider anything close to 15, like mediocre and look, uh, opponents are averaging. And I know this isn't perfect. Just 0.77 points per possession against him in isolation this season, an incredibly small sample size, but that is in the 75th percentile. If you were looking for some Dylan Brooks love that does it for the TPA questions. Are you sad? A little bit. I figured, but I'm, I'm willing to move on. Jaden McDaniels. We have a question about Jaden McDaniels. Uh, this is from Colin Matisse Krause. Give us Jaden McDaniels content. So the question is, what's Jaden McDaniels' ceiling? Now, I'm not trying to insult anybody or make a joke here, but for anyone who doesn't know, Jaden McDaniels plays with the Minnesota Timberwolves, and <laughs> they've been all over the place this season. Uh, you know, we, they did just they just hired Chris Finch as coach, like three seconds after they fired. Uh, Saunders as the, as their Ryan Saunders as their their head coach their their defense is, they they've barely had Carl Anthony Towns this season he and D'Angelo Russell by the way fun fact have played in just five games together since uh, the trade which was over a year ago and I know a lot of like weird stuff has happened but that's just an incredibly low number for them anyway their weakest point their weakest position or spot in the rotation I would say is that four spot Jaden McDaniels has given them someone who can fill it capably on defense for sure like that this guy's just all over the place for someone who is only us only you know six nine still pretty big his block rate is absurd and he makes like real plays uh when i i so i did actual research for this question i went back and watched a lot of Jaden mcdaniels he can break up plays from behind he is doesn't need to be set to make these plays without fouling either he does he can have really good hands at points too but really just a you know it can as a helper or just someone who's going to make a play at the rim. Absolutely huge for them. I would say a pretty good rebounder for his position too. The swing skills for him is going to be what is he going to do on offense? And he's shooting thirty five point one percent on from three on five point two uh, attempts per thirty six minutes, which is fine. Um, they're not going to need him to do stuff off the dribble a ton, but his forty one point nine percent on twos is troubling. He's only shooting forty eight point one percent inside of three feet. What gives me maybe hope for him is I think it was the game against a game against Chicago where he's he's put the ball on the floor and made some plays where like guys have bounced off his shoulder and he was able to create separation. And so if he can do that, I would think he'll eventually become a better finisher around the rim. I don't know if he'll ever be someone you could trust as an off the dribble shooter per se, but as someone who could put the ball on the floor and score at the rim and then knock down standstill threes and then be let, let's say you like your second best defender of really good in really good lineups, uh, even if you want to say your best defender. So what his ceiling is, I couldn't think of like a good comp because he, some of the stuff he does on offense happens in really slow motion. And so I'm trying to think of like who would make a lot of sense for him. And I just, I couldn't come up with anyone. So I thought of like a, like a straight to DVD version of OG Ananobi maybe. And that's not me just trying to be cruel. Uh, I just don't think he's going to have like the one-on-one chops that that OG does, and we've seen a lot more from OG on offense. That also might just be a a terrible comparison overall. So he, there's a chance that he's going to be pretty good, and for the Timberwolves to have um, scooped him up, uh, and people forget he was drafted um, 28th overall in 2020. It was by the the Lakers. Technically, had that pick, but like he's this is not like someone who's. I would say he's still coming out of the blue, but he was a first-round prospect, which certainly matters. So I do think if you want to say 3 and D with a little bit more on offense, I think there's absolutely a chance he can turn into that type of a player. I think the comparison, and it's one we saw a lot before the draft, is Jonathan Isaac. Um, I think he can shoot better than Isaac, though. Would just be Probably so. And the the way I view McDaniels, um, he he, he was coming into that 2020 NBA draft as – probably the single rawest NCAA prospect in that draft class. Like the tools are there, 
the consistency, the IQ, they aren't, which we saw flash a lot at Washington, where he just he was not as impactful as he was supposed to be as a freshman. He he did not have a lot of success there whatsoever. But like if you ask me, can Jaden McDaniels be a knockdown shooter? Yeah. Can he create for himself off the dribble? Yeah. Can he guard all sorts of different positions? Yeah. The question is like whether he's going to be able to mesh those skills together. I think he's he's probably one of the better examples of like a really low floor, really high ceiling prospect. And I'm, we just have no way of knowing without seeing what he's what he's doing on a day to day basis in practice and in shoot arounds and all sorts of stuff, um, which of those extreme outcomes he's going to hit, because it does feel like the the bottom and the top for him are further apart than they are for almost any 20 year old. This is way too early, but if you look at the trade details of how the Timberwolves acquired him on draft night the, this past year, just the four-team deal. Oh, it was a three-team deal, excuse me. Who would you rather have? And there's so much more moving parts here. Ricky Rubio was involved, but would you rather have Jane McDaniels long-term or Alexei Pokashevsky? Probably McDaniels just because the wing, the, those oversized two-way wings – tend to be the most valuable commodities in today's NBA. And I think just even though there's a high range of outcomes, those top-end results, if they're achieved, would be so much more impactful. And I think it's okay to talk about fit when you're out of the lottery in that case. And while Poku might just have – he's gonna he, he should be more dynamic offensively if he fills out uh, because even when he was inefficient in the NBA and he's had better moments in the G League, he, he was still interesting. You have Carl Anthony Towns. And so I don't I don't know what Poku is right. doing for you where Jaden McDaniels can absolutely play alongside Carl Anthony Towns. Um, this question comes from – is there a name next to this account? AJ, can you do net rating since the Harden to Brooklyn trade? Adam, it turns out we can because I already did. How about that? I'm proud of you. As all, I'm, I'm always proud of you, but just particularly right now. Let's start with so let's start with Houston before the trade was nine games um, and so the way I set this up by the way is I did it for Brooklyn when we get to it I did it for the first game since that James Harden actually played it wasn't the first game since the trade was I think he missed two maybe I'm actually off on that it was at least one so I tried to filter that out but Houston um, before the trade. Minus 4.3 points per 100 possessions was their net rating. Houston, since the trade, minus 3.4 points per 100 possessions. Uh, I will say, though, their offense was 20th before Harden left. It has been 28th since, and it looks like it, it belongs to be 28th since. The Christian Wood injury has obviously impacted that a little bit. Brooklyn. But, I mean, we've, we've always said that, you know, the problem with Houston was, was James Harden. So yeah. It, was, it makes uh, sense that they've been slightly better without him. Uh, the Nets, this is before the James Harden trade, plus 5.4 points per 100 possessions. They were 6-6 six and six at the time, if, if you guys care about that. They are 15-7 and seven since, since the first game Harden played. Again, want to make that clear. Plus 6 points per 100 possessions. Their offense has gone from 7th at 114.7 points per 100 possessions. They are 2nd over this ban at 122.4 points. 100 possessions everyone cares about the defense as they should they were 13th before the Harden trade 109.3 defensive rating they are a rock solid 25th since then at 116.4 the thing we haven't seen enough of is Irving Durant and James Harden playing together and this is the last thing I looked up because I'm sure people care about this they've logged 383 points uh, or 383 possessions together. Their offensive rating is 126.4. And their their defensive rating during that time, by the way, 113.3. And so if your offensive rating is going to be creeping up on 130, you can have a defensive rating closer to 115, and it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have much to add there because it feels like that's like exactly what we were expecting. It's the decision they made, and I'm just going to be interested to see whether – uh, they do anything to beef up their defense at the trade deadline. Right. Um, do we, do we have to, uh, to follow up on that before we move on to the next question? Like we did, we did see that, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie is being floated um, as a potential piece to be moved for in season help. So I, I think it's, it's clear both from our perspective and from the Nets perspective that, that there will be a move made to, to bolster that defense. I have a question, and I think I know he's coming off an ACL injury, but I view his bird rights as valuable if you're a team that doesn't have cap space. You know, if you're Orlando 
Isn't he kind of sort of exactly what you need in the backcourt against Fultz? Yes. I, I would 100%. I would love to see that. Yeah, I would can definitely consider acquiring him if I'm a team. It does seem pretty shitty to, one, move someone who was instrumental in like, getting you to where you were pre-KD Kyrie and then while he's injured. But um, from the Cal's perspective, I think Spencer Dinwiddie can help a lot of teams when he's healthy. Here's a question. I also, my, my, my sense from the outside, too, is just that like Dinwiddie – probably more than a lot of other players understands like just how much of a bit of business the NBA is. So I think like if you're going to do that to anyone, I think he would at least understand. Do you own Spencer Dinwiddie Bitcoin? Do you own Spencer Dinwiddie stock? I don't understand any of that stuff and I'm not going to pretend to. Uh, we could get into that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we can get into that on another podcast. Uh, this is funny that I just brought up a question and then closed it out because apparently I'm an idiot. But so this one, this is an easy question to answer. Lima's uh, handle master underscore red with two D's. Why do analytics prefer running to the three point line on a fast break over cutting to the basket? I just want to point I mean, out before the, the, the they, don't. The, they don't, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I'm assuming it's, the it's as simple as that, the, like the Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr. Gaff to end right. the nuggets game. I Porter messed up. Like it's as, it's as simple as that. I do want to know why Jamal, unless he was expecting Porter, like he was getting ready to throw a pass. I don't know why he picked up I his dribble. That's exactly what it was. So soon. That was probably. Yeah, I think what it he was. was just he was so convinced that one of the two guys, especially Porter, who was in position to do that, was going to cut towards the hoop, and it didn't happen. And he had to adjust from there. Just like after his teammate made an incredibly boneheaded move. But yeah, I mean, like there's, don't assume that analytics just means shoot more threes. Like that's no one has ever said that. Like, yes, teams should be shooting more threes, but they should be taking the right shots. And unless you're like an open layup at the hoop, an uncontested open layup is going to yield two points per possession. Right. Like NBA players are not going to miss that shot. Well, Willie Cauley-Stein disagrees, but carry on. (laughs) If you you think that you should take a three-pointer over a layup, to improve your expected points per possession, that means that you're expecting that three-pointer to be made 67% of the time. And, like, that doesn't happen. So, yeah, like, nothing in analytics says that you should be taking three-pointers over uncontested layups. And I don't think that players, you would, this would be a question for them, but let's say a Draymond Green, who I think quite often will pass out of what looks like an open two to an open three-point shooter. It's either instinct, maybe they know who the shooter is, maybe he trusts Stephen Curry, and also if you're going through a slump or Draymond Green just seems really hesitant to score on offense, that might be more about the way a player is wired than or than the way I don't think he's in real time being like, oh, this is analytically a better shot from Kelly Oubre Jr. in the corner. If it's Steph, maybe it's a debate between a Draymond you know, floater and a Steph three. Uh, or but Also, like you just said it, like it's a Draymond floater. It's not a, a Draymond a layup, yeah. contested it was... layup. Like he's not turning down wide open paths to the basket. He's turning down like slightly contested shots because he's not the greatest finisher. He's also like, these are these are player based decisions. He's also turned down some pretty wide open looks. But I agree with him. The other he thing has. is like yeah, analytics... he, he probably errs too far on that side. Analytics also does not say don't shoot mid range jumpers. Do you think someone's analytics tell... also doesn't say anything? Analytics yeah. <laughs> provides information that people who are assessing said information then decide what it says right and no one's telling chris paul or kevin durant to shoot less from the mid-range it's that if you're going to be a catch and shoot guy it it makes more sense for everyone else on your team for you to stand behind the three-point line because one those shots are worth more points and two you're clogging the lane for others so uh, this is i'm and this was a, a question i think um from master red i'm not even trolling them I think people actually believe this and it's just not, you know, and I don't think anyone should only be looking at the numbers either. We're all, there's analytics and the eye test need to work in concert. And I don't know why this is still like a thing. And that's not to insult the question asker. That's just this, the entire debate just really is, it's tired at this point. And one of my two biggest pet peeves on this topic, one is just the assumption that more threes is always good regardless of the situation and the circumstances. And and the other is that like thinking that analytics have created this like homogenous play style. Like, yes, every team takes a lot of three pointers now, but if you watch the games, like you see how differently they work to get those three pointers. Like it is, even if the end result of a possession is the same across the board, it doesn't mean that the basketball played to generate that attempt was even remotely similar. 
Let's get to this was a fun betting question. Which team, this comes from Colton Johnson, which team has been the best against the spread this year? Would you care to take a guess before I reveal the results? I, I genuinely have no idea. This is, I, I never pay attention to the betting stuff. So I 100% thought you totally would get this. in the dark here. It's the Utah Jazz. They have covered mm-hmm. against the spread 73.5% of the time, 25 and 9. If you want to, um, as a favorite, which has been pretty incredible for them, they are 20, they're technically second because Oklahoma City is 100% against the spread as a favorite because they've only been favored once and they won that game. Utah's 23 and 8 against the spread as a favorite. Um, if you look at as an underdog, just to quickly wrap, wrap this up, the Phoenix Suns have the highest cover percentage as the underdog at 75%. They're 6 and 2. San Antonio is second, uh, 11 and 5 against the spread when when they're an underdog. So for all you for all you betting Knicks out there, I just found that interesting. The Jazz would have been the team I think that I predicted. It also it actually might have been Phoenix, but I I feel like I have a fetish for the Suns at this point. So that's probably So based on that information, and again, like this is coming from a place of total ignorance with all the betting stuff, like does that mean that the Lakers are probably the worst against the spread as a favorite? Just because it seems like you know, Utah is is the small market appeal and people have trouble uh, get grasping that they are as good as their record is indicating. Whereas like I can see how the betting lines might take advantage of people's willingness to ride with the Lakers. And betting lines are, I believe at least to some extent, like a reflection of the action as well. So I think so, but, but again, I'm, I don't want to say that definitively. The Lakers are 14 and 18 against the spread as favorites. And I think that tells you all you need to know is that, okay, this season, the Lakers have now played, what are they up to in games played? They've played 34 games, and they've been favored in 32 of them? Is that, is, am I, am I Seems right? Seems about right. Yeah, so 32 of 34. But yeah, I mean, that's there's an element of that in there. But I did Utah um, as the favorite. Technically, I'm going to view them as one instead of Oklahoma City just because they never get to be the favorite. That's cheating, but I don't care. Shout out to the Jazz this season, killing it. Uh, hey, look, speaking of my fetish for the Suns, we're going to get, well, we're going to wrap up soon here. We're going to get through 20 questions on this podcast in about an hour. I feel like that's called efficiency. Um, Fred asks, is Devin Booker the most overrated player in the league? If not, who is? Now, the thing I just want to point out here is that Devin Booker is absolutely just not overrated. And anyone who listens to this podcast knows how we collectively, and at least I personally feel about Devin Booker is an incredibly undervalued passer, even this season when you're looking at the turnover problems he had at the beginning of the year. Someone who can score from pretty much every level by creating for himself, um, getting guys on his hip. He is just, he is so good. And I think it's been downplayed a little bit because of how good Chris Paul has been. And if you want to argue Paul has been more important because of his crunch time performance, I'll listen to it. But Devin Booker is a top. 20 25 player in this league and it's hands down for me and i think i left him off my all-star ballot that was just the all-star ballots are wild this season that's all i can say it's so impossible do i regret it i don't know but i'm happy he got in and look i'm not discrediting anyone for getting in as an injury replacement by the way it is his second time in two times being an all-star but you know donovan mitchell was uh, not that excuse me darren fox is up for that spot mike conley this year you're not he beat out those guys that's actually an important distinction so my personal opinion is i don't think devin booker is overrated does anyone spring to your mind do you think he's overrated and do you think no i don't i i don't mean any offense to the question asker here just personally i don't really love questions about players being overrated because how do we determine how rated they are in the first place like that baseline is so important to this question. So if I have to answer it, I think it's it's typically going to be a younger guy who the general perception is that they are more valuable and further along in their career growth than they are. So like the first name that came to mind is like Tyler Hero because he had like so many impressive rookie season moments during the Heat's run to the NBA Finals and just has not managed to live up to that. And I'm not sure that perception has adjusted accordingly but even then like it's really clear that hero has a future as a star in this league and there are so many good things that he does so it's not like saying he's overrated now means he's always going to be yeah now that i don't have now that i'm not writing and like more in the editing world and the podcasting world and the the stat based world like i don't have to answer the overrated questions as much and i'm glad about that (laughs) 
I don't know that I've given I, I don't know when the last time I've given thought to the the overrated question was. And people seem to just regurgitate the same names. Again, this isn't an insult to the person who asked the question, but it's it's Zach Levine, it's Devin Booker, it's Trey Young. It you know, I I don't know that I it's all relative. D'Angelo Russell might be another answer. I almost feel like perception is probably skewed too far. If you have a guy who can hit off the dribble jumpers, you shoot like 42% from pull-up threes before his injury this year. I have to think that that matters. Like, you could also yeah, go yeah, towards yeah. like the the viral moment people where it's like that they – like there was a point where he's so – no, this is actually – I'm not even going to say it. I can't risk our, down, our podcast being downvoted again, and I'm not even sure that I, I meet it. But Tyler Hero might be an example where there's a rush to coordinate, and we might have been there with Devin Booker at one point, Jason Tatum at one point where there was this rush to view them as something they weren't ready to be, and that's probably the genesis of a lot of the the issues here. In some ways, it's like almost a compliment with these younger guys, where like the expectations exist for a reason. It's not like those just came out of nowhere. Like They did something to generate those expectations, and even if they haven't been able to meet them consistently, like they still got there. It's kind of like how... You know, Skip Bayless likes to criticize LeBron James for like missing a clutch jumper or not being willing to take one or something without acknowledging that there wouldn't be a clutch opportunity if not for LeBron James's work in the first 47 minutes of the game. Yeah, it's a good point. Let's get to a rosier question. It's another Suns question, though, because like I, I told you, I have a, a Suns fetish. Cade Hornack asks, which player in the buyout market would help the Suns the most? I'm willing to open it up to trade targets because the buyout market has not fully developed at this point. If you want to pinpoint maybe someone that you think could be bought out or someone who's cheap on the market. I just, I just want to cut you off first and say that this is like the most Dan Favalli question imaginable to the point that I'm questioning if this is one of your burners. Like uh, a buyout slash trade question about the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, that is my brand this you, year. You wrote this, right? Uh, look, this all I'm going to say is this Twitter profile has photos and everything on it, so... Uh, shout out to Cade for asking a great question. Yeah. So I don't. It's tough because they don't have guys that you can just move. There, when you look at what would technically be their best salary matching anchors, you're not moving Paul or Booker. You're not giving up on Aiton at this point. Can you move Jay Crowder nine point three million? Can you move Dario Sarge nine point three million? Sure, but why do you want to? Who are you getting back in those moves that makes you want to move those guys? Sarge at the five lineups have just been annihilating opponents this year at both ends of the floor. That does lead me to who would be my trade target for them. I think a lot of people want them to sort of lock down the, the guard position a little bit, but it's hard to get a George Hill just because if you're not willing to give up Jalen Smith, then the money matching there just gets incredibly tough. You're talking about like a, a four for one, basically. I do understand the thought process of, well, you know, do we trust Cameron Payne and his performance this season? You probably should, but it's worth considering. I thought about PJ Tucker just because I think DeAndre Eaton has been incredibly good on defense overall. But if you need someone who can maybe defend higher, or if you want to, if you have to go up against lineups that are super diversified or smaller, and you definitely can trust PJ Tucker more than Dario Sarge in that role, probably get to reunite him with Chris Paul. And it's probably a package where it's like Javon Carter. Um, still an excellent defender, but he's not really hitting his threes this year. And then Abdel Nader, maybe you have to include a second, but like that package for PJ Tucker feels like it really solidifies a team where I don't know that the front court rotation is their biggest weakness because that really depends on how you much you trust campaign. But I also have a problem investing real equity in the backcourt right now when you have Chris Paul and Devin Booker on your team, where it's like, you know what, let's just ride the, right. the Cameron Payne wave. And so that's a guy that stood out uh, because maybe you don't trust Jalen Smith or you shouldn't. He's just... You know, I don't even know what the Suns' plan for him is at this point. He's not going to be the one that tips the scales in your favor. But Tucker doesn't also only have to play the five, and yet he's cheap enough to where you don't feel obligated to close him. And with teams like Dead or Deep, like the Suns and the Jazz, I'm not just trying to over-compliment the Suns here. Uh, you know, you can look at a Lakers team and be like, oh, I can identify. Like Maybe there's someone that can be in their closing lineup. With the Suns or the Jazz, whoever you acquire is just probably not going to be in a closing lineup most of the time. And so Tucker, yeah, he could be in some but he's someone that you don't necessarily have to feel obligated to, to close with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the only thing I would add is like more generic buyout candidates who could make sense for the Suns, just as out of depth, like Trevor Ariza, JaVale McGee, like just those, those typical like role-playing names who would be good on any contender at this point. Like, I, I don't think that they're going to uh, fill a specific need with this year's buyout market. 
Yeah, and like no one's really going to buy out a guard that could be, you know, serviceable right. either. Right. You know, if Jeff Teague comes on the market or Brad Wanamaker, like that's not that that's not going to be it for them. Yeah, I'm with you there. Next question comes from Morpheus. Is the salary cap going down next year? You're going to ask me if this is my burner too. Uh, next year's salary cap is set as at this point for $112.4 million. My guess is going to be that it just comes down because the revenue is going to be down. I don't know right, how— The salary cap's based on BRI, which is almost certainly going to go down as we continue to not have ticket revenues Well, at the same uh, time, NBA teams. there's like more than half the league does have fans coming back to capacity. So I, I know they baked in the change for these projections. I'm just curious how heavily they did— and what ends up happening? You know, we're not we're not out of the pandemic yet. So are there are there going to be missed games? How many teams don't play seventy two games? What happens during the playoffs? Um, all that stuff matters. So my guess would be that it goes down. Uh, I don't know. I but I think they're going to do they'll do what they did this year if it comes to that drastic. I don't think they're going to drag it below the one hundred nine point one. No, it'll be much. smoothed out if it needs to be. Just because the NBA knows the teams operate on multi year plans. So you can't disrupt strategies too much by having like gigantic cap swings. This will be our final question and our 20th question. That feels like a pretty good number to, to get through. Uh, this is a little bit more topical. This comes from Andrew Blake. Who was the biggest all-star snub? Oh, it's Chris Middleton without a doubt. It's, it's between him and Bam for me. And Devin Booker might have been up there too as someone who didn't put him on his ballot though. Can I call him a, can I call him a snub? Uh, but he made it eventually. I, Bam has been so good, and I couldn't believe that he didn't make it. So those two feel like the, the right answer. Chris Middleton, I guess, because he cooled off a little bit, but he is he's just fantastic. And even if you think yeah, he's I mean, over- we made the Middleton case on earlier episodes, but I, it, I think to me it comes down to like team record too. Like Miami is still below 500, even if it's gotten better as the season has progressed. Milwaukee is pushing for the number one seed in the East again. And like Middleton has been a huge part of that. I, it, it would be between those two for me. I'm not sure who would I lean. I think I would lean Chris Middleton just because I'm probably always going to value just the wings that that can create. So if you think he's overrated on defense, that could skew because Bam is, you know, he's a fantastic defender. So, And I would say that like Trey and Conley are probably the next tier of snubs. Yeah, I would agree with you there. That will do it for this mailbag. Uh, we will. We were inundated with questions. Maybe we'll do a second one at some point this week because we had a lot of questions that we did not get to. So apologies to anyone who's listening that didn't have their question answered. Please, please, pretty please, though, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you are getting your podcasts. iTunes especially, even if you don't use us. Rating and reviews there help us out a ton. These mailbags are going to be weekly on Mondays, and I guess in this case maybe we could potentially throw in a second one. We, will, we shall see. But until next time. I leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, every single member of the Phoenix Suns team this season. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.